And now a few words from Jason Abraham of Hupie and Abraham about how preferred capital has helped him and his clients. Hi, Jason Abraham here from Hupie and Abraham. I've had the pleasure of representing over 70,000 people in our career in automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents and the like. And I have found preferred capital funding to be so beneficial to our clients when they have a loan issue, especially here in Wisconsin with the change in the law that would allow these loans to be discoverable and in individual actions and insurance companies and their lawyers even trying to bring in the loan company as a party to the lawsuit. With the loans by preferred capital funding, we do not have to list them in discovery. There are no issues that they're going to be brought into the cases. Their staff is easy to deal with. And so I would highly recommend preferred capital funding to your clients if they need a loan. Today, the result is happy to welcome attorney Scott Bowman of Geyser Bowman and McClafferty, also known as GBM Law, located in Columbus, Ohio. Having tried more than 40 cases to verdict, Scott is no stranger to a jury trial. Already a member of the Million Dollar Forum and active in bar and plaintiff bar associations, both in Ohio and nationally, Scott is a very active member of the plaintiff legal community. Scott boasts numerous six and seven figure verdicts and settlements throughout his long career. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, uh, as we do with every episode, we start at the end. What was the monetary result of the case we will be discussing today? It was a uh, $750,000 settlement. Talk us through the details of the case. So this is one of those cases that was early in my career and really kind of set the stage for how it was going to pursue cases. And, and one of the things I learned was you really need to dig beneath the surface. You can't just take things at face value or you might lose quite an opportunity. And, and such was this case. So I get a phone call from a family member of someone who had uh, unfortunately died in a uh, vehicular accident. And, you know, at first blush, you hear the facts of the case. You can see why, as this uh, family member told me, a lot of other lawyers had turned the case down. It was a bright, sunny day. And the decedent was driving down a country road, came up a hill, and there was this huge trash truck picking up trash in this rural community right in front of her. She plows into it at a high rate of speed. Uh, car bursts into flames. Thank God she was able to get out of the car, but later succumbed to her injuries. So, you know, us lawyers see that at first blush and think, wow, that's ACDA. Uh, it's her fault. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. The family member was very adamant that they felt they had a case. And I know we've all been there before. You know, the way they feel doesn't necessarily mean there is a case. I figured at a minimum, I'd get the crash report. I get the crash report. And one of the first things I notice is there is a uh, witness statement. It's pretty vague, but the witness statement says, I almost hit the truck, had to swerve into oncoming traffic and ended up in a ditch. That's all it said. I thought, you know what? Let me at least call this witness. And she was reluctant to speak at first. And that's one of the things I learned early in my career. And I think it's important for us lawyers to never forget, and I think as we get older and jaded, we tend to forget that while uh, the legal process may be something we're used to, it's very intimidating to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just talking to a lawyer, they, they tend to think they're in trouble or something, or they don't want to get someone else in trouble. Uh, and I was finally able to convince her to have coffee with me and, and sit down and talk to her. 
And what she told me was, in my opinion, stunning. She said that she was driving in the same direction as uh, my eventual client, uh, the deceased, and she crested that same hill. She literally couldn't see anything because of, as she described it, a veil of sunlight. And next thing you know, there's this large truck in front of her, and to avoid it, it was either swerve into oncoming traffic or hit it. Fortunately, there was no oncoming traffic, and she ended up in a ditch. Then what she said next really perked my ears up. She said, the driver of the, the, the person that was in the trash truck came over and said, you know, are you okay, et cetera. She looked him dead in the eye and said, I could not see you. You need to move your truck. She said she sees him go back in. He's on his radio and doesn't move the truck. She yells at him. Why did you not move the truck? He says, dispatch says, stay put. It's our policy. You don't move if there's been an accident. What happens next? She says she sees another vehicle barely hit the truck again. He still doesn't move it. And then, unfortunately for my uh, client, we all know what happens. She mm-hmm. hits it at a high rate of speed. So, Scott, just to make sure I have kind of the order of things completely straight, you had a witness who swerved out of the way, is in the ditch on the other side, is telling the driver that he needs to move the truck. In that process, while he's in the truck radioing back to home base, another car comes and barely clips the truck, still doesn't move, and then your client unfortunately comes through and is killed by hitting the truck, which had remained stationary. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So what happened next? So what happened next was I file suit. Uh, I didn't think there was any, it made any sense to, you know, try to work out a settlement without litigation because I was going to get ACDA, it's your client's fault, we're not paying any money. So we open an estate and we file suit against this company. And I knew from the from Jump Street, it was going to be what I call policies and procedures case in that I was going to have to really focus on my direct cause of action against the company for having uh, dangerous uh, safety rules, dangerous policies and procedures when it came to uh, moving a vehicle, moving one of their company vehicles that was in a dangerous position. So we immediately conducted the discovery went, as I'm sure a lot of attorneys have seen, as one would expect when you're going up against a corporation, corporate attorneys. Discovery was exhausting. You know, they were really good at what I, you know, document dumps where, you know, if you weren't real specific about what you were looking for, you were going to get it. This is back in the days when we really weren't doing stuff electronically. You're going to just get crates of documents you'd have to go through. So it took. And again, looking beneath the surface, you would have to dig through all these documents and then you'd find a nugget, which would lead you to send a second set of discovery, getting more narrow, a third set, a fourth set. I'm pretty sure in this case, we probably did five sets of paper discovery, at, you know, interrogatories, requests for production mm-hmm. of documents to really dig deep into the corporate culture, if you will, it, when it came to safety and when it came to profits over safety. And what I found was, as they disclosed, as I found witnesses who were not with the company any longer, I got real nervous. You know, I was constantly getting the threatening letters that, you know, do not 
contact these people uh, directly. Yes, they're no longer employed, but under the law of blah, 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 <laughs> you, you know, mm-hmm. they could bind us. So you can't talk to them without going through me, attorney such and such. I mean, they wouldn't even give me contact information really to find them anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the spiel you just gave me, but hell, I can't find this person anyway. You're just giving me a name. I'll never forget one of the people we finally uh, deposed, one of the ex-employees we deposed was a ex-garbage uh, truck driver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I think we set it up, we set the deposition up at a neutral location close to the witness. And I just remember, it was almost like a look of terror in opposing counsel's face. Like, I really don't know what this witness is going to say. And so what do lawyers usually do in that situation? He's just objecting like hell all over the record. Doesn't want him to answer anything. And it got to a point where he, he, he objected and wouldn't let him answer under the theory of attorney-client privilege. So I looked at the witness. I said, did you know that attorney such and such was your lawyer? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, he seems to think he is. How much of a retainer did you pay him? Nothing. Is he giving you a bill? <laughs> no. <laughs> Play along, man. Be cool. Be cool. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so he wasn't having it. And what you found, in, it, you know, this is a, you know, a lowly driver. And that's how he felt when he worked with this company. They treated him bad. To tell the corporate culture was, get your route done as fast as you can. And we'll put a bunch of cool safety signs on our trucks and on our website about how we're really careful about the motoring public. But when it really came to safety, that was on the back burner. And that's kind of the first nugget I, I really got from a witness Mm -hmm. so then you know and and then you start working your way up the chain up the hierarchy in a a corporation and you know i I wanted to talk to the safety director uh who who was the safety director at the time because i'm thinking well someone came up with this policy of no matter how damn dangerous the situation and no matter what the threat to the motoring public is you don't move that truck and, and, and I really got a sense of that going back to the, the, the ex-employee slash driver. Uh, he said, yeah, it, the edicts, the rule was if there was any sort of incident, minor fender bender, it didn't matter. You did not move that truck. And I said, did they give you any exceptions? Like if it was dangerous? He said, no. I said, do they ever tell you a reason for that? He said, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, because if you move your truck, these greedy lawyers will sue you. And I thought, (laughs) okay, we're really getting somewhere. So back to the safety director. So I want to talk to the safety director who I'm assuming came up with this policy at the time. And um, just like this ex-driver, they, it represents to me that the safety director at the time of this tragedy uh, no longer worked there. And they're getting real. And then I'm getting the runaround about setting this guy's depot up. Well, you know, he's busy, this, that, this, that, which just never ceases to amaze me. It's like defense lawyers, when you do that shit, (laughs) it's obvious that I really want to take this person's deposition. So we finally take his deposition. And again, I have the same look of fear in the defense lawyer's eyes when we enter the room. And it was so bad that they wouldn't even, you know, get to, you know, this policy they had about not moving your truck. And 
I couldn't believe this, this ex-safety director, he wore like a badge of honor that he came up with this policy because you didn't want to destroy evidence and you didn't want to get sued for tampering with evidence. I mean, I let him down the primrose path. I'm like, even if the dispatcher and or the driver knows this is an extremely dangerous situation. You no exceptions. Nope. No exceptions. Even if someone could get killed. Well, no, because, you know, that's our safety policy. And that's, you know, we, we, we don't want to tamper with evidence, et cetera. You know, even getting into, well, you know, I think even personalized it with them. I mean, you've been in car wrecks before, haven't you? Yeah. And police ever show up and tell you to move your car. Well, yeah. Why do you think that was? Because <laughs> it's safer, <laughs> you know? I get to, well, why did you leave this company? First, I asked him, when did he leave? Objection, wouldn't even let him answer that. Again, red flags, red lights are going off like crazy at this point. Gets to a point where I have a conference off the record with the attorneys, and they basically say, well, the reason he left, it's really embarrassing for him. My response was a bit flippant. I said, well, does, embarrassing doesn't get it. I mean, we, we, we got to talk about embarrassing stuff. I'm not, a, a, I'm not aware of an embarrassing privilege. He, he needs to answer the question. Well, he's not answering unless we get the, ju the judge involved, et cetera, et cetera. They leave the room. I look at co-counsel, who also works here at the firm, and I'm like, man, at this point, I just really want to know why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, why don't we just agree to have him tell us off the record. Now, some of the lawyers would disagree with that. My position was, even though it's off the record, it's on the record in the sense of these attorneys are going to see what comes out of his mouth and what a jury may hear. Yep. And, you know, we can always go to the court later if we really want to get it on the record. He proceeds to, I won't get into the, the uh, lewd details. Basically, he uh, exposed himself to two female co-workers while on some sort of company retreat that literally sounded like, uh, you know, sp a spring break party or something. Yeah, I don't think that's the kind of bonding that's supposed to happen on corporate retreats, but maybe that's just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it sounded like a bit much. So, you know, I, and, and so then that got me thinking, I'm like, you know, I'm finding out. It just seems like this, the corporate culture with this company, when it comes to safety, when it comes to how they treat their employees, is just rotten. And I just kept taking depositions of uh, division and department heads. And, and my thoughts were revealed. I mean, they just sexual harassment all over the place. Safety was just not that important. They put safety up there. It, it was a show horse. You know what I mean? It was just, mm -hmm. yes, safety is important. More for profit, more, more, more as a marketing tool than anything. They didn't, really didn't mean it. Um, so after just exhaustive discovery, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we, we, we have a status conference, or I think it was a status conference or pre-trial, I can't remember, in front of Judge Duncan Whitney in Delaware County, Ohio. Now, I don't know who's ever been in front of Duncan Whitney, but just to give you a sense of Duncan Whitney, who I actually got along with, he had a large... It's called a placard, whatever the hell you call it. He had something right up there on the bench, on his desk, that said, I don't care what they do in Franklin County. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which, as people probably know, is where Columbus is, right below Delaware County. And he was someone who, to be quite frank, 
He liked to pontificate a lot. But if you kissed the ring and listened to him and were honest with him, he was a great judge. So as most judges are wont to do, he says, well, what are the chances of settlement here? And there was a motion for jump. The, the motion for summary judgment that I knew was going to come was pending, saying, look, it's ACDA, it was a clearly discernible object, throw this case out. Now, I did have an expert explaining how it wasn't. So I was actually relatively confident we were going to win on uh, the motion, although I still worried. And Judge Whitney looks at us, as again, as most judges are wont to do, and says, well, what are the chances of this case settling? And opposing counsel gets up and just looks at him, looks at me and says, under no circumstances will I pay Mr. Bowman or his clients one red cent. At which point Judge Whitney looks at me and says, well, Mr. Bowman, you might as well just prepare your motion for prejudgment interest right now. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning it was clear to him they were not even, they weren't, they were already not negotiating in good faith and weren't planning on it. Okay, so let me let me ask this then. So you now, <laughs> summary judgment, not an issue. Uh, the judge is clearly telling you that this is going forward. Mm-hmm. Where was the turning point for the defense between we're not paying you one red cent and getting to this $750,000 settlement? It was, it was them losing on the MSJ. So, you know, they were not going to offer anything while that motion was pending. I would have thought, I guess if I were them, after seeing how, you know, Judge Whitney's posture on the matter, as you just stated, I would have thought they would have come to me because the writing was on the wall. We're going to win. But I think they just kept out hope they would win on the motion. Well, they did. If you don't, if you don't mind me asking, what was your initial demand? Probably, well, I got to think about that. Maybe $1.5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about that. The decedent had a, a large family was not married at the time. And there was uh, the administrator of the estate was a local attorney in uh, Marion. Uh, Wreck happened in Delaware. So once that motion was overruled, I recall the company came to me and said, are you interested in mediating this case? Um, I chose Bob Willard as mediator, uh, who's a great mediator and colleague of mine. He unfortunately passed away. He uh, played football under Woody Hayes. So he always had really good Woody mm. Hayes stories. So, but I, I'm diverting from this. So we show up at the mediation and their first offer is zero. <laughs> so, you know, I'm inclined to walk out, but, and, and this is what I tell my clients whenever we have a mediation and the first offer is terrible. Just wait. There's so much posturing that goes on. No, it's frustrating. A lot of it I think is BS, but you just got to play the game. So on that day, think the mediation took 12 hours it was long that's a long uh we finally got him to the 750,000 that the administrator recommended but and we had a couple family members squawking and saying they wanted more but i you know hindsight's always 2020 it's one of those cases sometimes i i wish i would have tried but you weigh you know in talking with the family and you got to keep your client's uh, best interest in mind you know, you're thinking that's quite a swing. It could be zero or $750,000 for this family. Um, mm-hmm. And we eventually came to the conclusion it was best to settle the case. And then the case took yet another twist and turn. We show up at, I think we had a conference with the probate judge. And what the administrator had proposed as far as the distribution of the settlement monies was basically equal distribution to all the kids, except for one. 
who they were going to give nothing to. And the reason for that was this was a proverbial prodigal's child. No one had seen her for, I think, 20 years or something. She had had no contact with the deceased, the mom, for 20 years. Been in and out of jail. We tried to find her. Couldn't find her. And, you know, the probate judge looked it over and it's like, you know, that's fine with me. Uh, we're going to set this for a hearing on such and such a day. Great. Well, I show up for the probate hearing, go into the judge's chambers, and I noticed two well-dressed gentlemen in there that I've never seen before. <laughs> at that point, I just looked at the judge. I said, let me guess. These are the two attorneys for the prodigal's child. Yes. <laughs> and they just, you know, they're kind of older lawyers. Back in the day, they thought if you yelled and screamed, it really got you somewhere. And You're trying to cut our client out, et cetera, et cetera. And the judge was an older guy. He's like, just calm down. Can't you guys work something out? Um, I said, well, let me talk to the administrator. And, you know, at that point, I'm kind of in a conflict. You know, I made it clear. I said, look, I, I'm not here to make suggestions of who gets what. I brought a pot of money in for the estate. It's up to the administrator. And if there's going to be a full-blown hearing, it'll be a full-blown hearing. Talk to the administrator. The administrator offers money to the prodigal child, and they won't take it. So now, for the first time in my career, I got to participate in a full-blown probate hearing with Family members fighting over money. Everybody's yes, dream. It was great. So I hope you noted the sarcasm. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was put up on the stand by the two attorneys representing the person that wasn't getting any money. Uh, and just, you know, you're, you, you purposely tried to keep my client. I, just, I kept singing the same tune. No, my job is to simply bring in money for the estate. I do not care who gets what. Um, and at the end of the hearing, the judge made a decision and gave their client the exact same amount that we were willing to give her. So that is my story. It was one of those cases that to this day, I almost remember like it was uh, yesterday. I'm 51 now, so my memory's not the greatest. But Hey, you made my job today very easy. You, you went through every part of the narrative that I was going to ask about. So let's yep. end with this. Uh, a question I ask on every podcast, because the majority of our listeners are also trial lawyers, not only in Ohio, but around the country. What do you think the most tangible takeaway, something that you learned during this process that you that if another attorney was sitting with you and you said, look, if there's one thing you should learn from my experience in this case, it, it is, is whenever you have a case uh, responding at superior case, you can't just file your lawsuit looking for uh you can't just file the respondeat superior complaint if you will just saying make it simple driver's negligent therefore corporation is negligent always file direct causes of action also against the corporation for uh for policies and procedures or negligent policies and procedures because that in my opinion opens up the floodgates to a lot of discovery you may not otherwise get because in this case i was constantly getting uh, that's not even discoverable. It's not discoverable. And I kept pointing out, no, I have a direct cause of action against this company. So of course I'm entitled to your manuals, your policies and procedures. Of course I'm entitled to depose the safety director. You know, if I, it was just a responding superior type case, I think they might've had a valid argument that, Hey, look, you're only saying that driver's negligent, we're negligent. So there's no reason for you to get mm -hmm. into policies and procedures. And the other takeaway and to kind of bootstrap off of that, got to start digging into the corporate culture and deposing directors if they corporations hate that they don't they don't like the spotlight on them right they don't like you digging into 
their policies and procedures because I think they know a lot of times you're going to find it's really profit over safety. And that's what I found in this case. Well, and I and I think that uh, a conversation yeah. for another day, perhaps, but I think culture in business period, whether you're in law, medicine, uh, trash deliver, trash pickup, whatever it is, I think is a very undervalued portion mm-hmm. of success yeah. in business. Well, Scott, I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you working us through the case. Um, everyone that's listening, I hope this all comes out smooth after editing because we had a small technical glitch during the first run at this. Uh, but Scott, really appreciate you taking the hey, time. Hey, no problem. Thank Thanks you for having me. 